The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, so I just want to say welcome to, I know there's some people who are new. Please let me know if the, uh, if the sound is not okay. Just, just raise your hand. I know there's some people who are new here, so welcome. Um, I... <coughs> I just today I just came from Santa Cruz, uh, from IRC, which is the the residential retreat center that we just opened, um, and Gil and I are teaching a one week retreat down there right now, and it's very sweet. It's a very nice place, so I I highly recommend uh, if you ever have the opportunity to do a weekend retreat or a week long retreat. Um, It has a very nice feeling, and it's it's in a, a renovated big, big mansion. Uh, so anyway, um, so this is the third part of uh, a series on the, on the some perspectives on the Buddhist teaching of not self. Um, uh, th- there's a teaching in in Buddhism called the three characteristics, which you, you might have heard, the three characteristics of existence. And, and this teaching says that um, all things, all, all experience, uh, anything that we can experience through the body and mind, uh, first of all, it's impermanent. You know, so it changes. Um, and second of all, it's... Uh, um, because it's impermanent, there's nothing in this experience of body and mind that we can call a self, that we can call a, a lasting, a separate, uh, self-existing, uh, se- separately existing self. So that's uh, anatta, not self. And the third characteristic is uh, dukkha, which is suffering or unsatisfactoriness, you know, uh, when, we, when we cling to something that's impermanent, um, it creates suffering. You know, uh, so in another, so anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, uh, suffering, and not self. Another formulation of this is uh, <laughs> things change, we change, and usually uh, this creates suffering. Um, so, so the teaching of not-self is, is often considered one of the most challenging of the Buddhist teachings, one of the most challenging to understand. Um, and one reason is because it can be very easily misunderstood. Um, you know, when we hear that, you know, there is no self, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, the Buddha said, there's no self, so I don't count. Um, I'm a nobody. My needs and, and hopes and dreams and desires, what does it matter? Because in the end, there's no self. Um, you know, it, this is not true at all. Uh-huh. 
So the first thing I want to say about not-self is that uh, as one of the three characteristics, it's it's seen as an insight, you know? It's it's something we see, it's something we understand, often through meditation. It's not meant to be a way of being. Um, You know, it's not meant to be a personality type. Um, You know, so the, the goal... Of the, of the practice is not to become a, a no-self or a not-self. Um, you know, the goal is to see and to understand something about the nature of self. Um, so I've talked about this a little bit before in the previous weeks, but just to say again, you know, uh, there's no record of the Buddha ever saying there is no self. Um, you know, what the Buddha taught is that when we look for a self, a separate, independent self, uh, in the body, in thinking, in consciousness, in anything that we can experience or anything that we can know, uh, we can't find that self. It's not findable. Um, you know, it, we often think of the body as being mine, but uh, you know, I don't own this body. I, I, can, I have some control over it, but I can't stop it from getting, I can't stop it from aging, I can't stop it from getting sick, I can't stop it from dying. You know, um, so to, just to, to recap a little bit, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I talked about uh, how we, how, how, so the Buddha says that we can't find a self, yet we have this strong experience of a self. And, uh, and the suggestion here is that what we experience uh, is a perspective, you know, is one perspective. Uh, so the self is a perspective. And the self is something that is constructed. It's something that's built. It's not this default. And so how is it built? How is it constructed? Uh, well, the, we construct the self uh, through through the process of clinging, you know, when we cling to something as me, as mine, or as myself, um, this sense of self comes into being, and with that sense of self uh, comes suffering. And so last week, uh, I told the story about uh, Seijo, this girl. Um, and uh, I, won't, I won't go into the whole story, but the, the basic idea uh, is that looking at uh, the suffering that comes from separation and uh, this, you know, making a self is one form of separation and there can also be separation and division within the self. Um, 
and, and something about wholeness, something about including all these parts of ourselves. And uh, the question of, you know, what's, what's my true self? You know, and the suggestion that um, maybe uh, our true self is, you know, who and what we are is simply the activity of the moment. You know, when there's no separation between me and what I'm doing, when there's no separation between me and the world, um, you know, all, all I am is just, is just the experience of the moment, just the next experience, the next experience, the next experience. Um, I don't know if that's so satisfying but for the true self, but that's, uh, that's what I have to offer. <laughs> um, and so today, I would like to look at the self uh, and not-self from another angle, which is this uh, fundamental paradox of, of this practice, which is that in order to really understand this insight of not-self, in order to really um, see, see this and see deeply into not-self, uh, what's required of us is actually to have, you know, what we would say in the West, a strong sense of self. Um, you know, there, there's this expression, I, I, met, I mentioned it before. Um, I think it comes from Jack Engler, uh, who is a Vipassana teacher and a psychologist uh, in Boston. And he, one of the things he's famous for, probably the main thing he's famous for, is this expression of um, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Um, so, so that's a little what I'm going to talk about today. Um, you know, what does it mean to be somebody in this practice? Um, you know, uh, what qualities of the heart uh, what qualities of the self uh, can we cultivate that can support insight you know, into these three characteristics, that can support insight into not-self? Um, uh, when I first started uh, meditating, uh, I... Uh, I was really excited about it, and I would often tell my friends about you know what I was doing or going on retreats. Or, um, actually, I, I had this one roommate in San Francisco, and when over the course of a year, I started meditating, I started doing yoga, and I became a vegetarian. And the vegetarian thing was the last straw for him. <laughs> and when I said, "I think I think I'm I think I'm not going to eat meat," now I eat meat, but I. I think I'm not going to eat meat anymore," he said, "because life doesn't suck enough." <laughs> uh, when I would tell friends what I was doing, us and, and, and family members, some some would, you know, um, say, "Oh, that's nice. So that's interesting. Meditating, going on retreats." Um, but what really made a made an impression on me was uh, the look of terror on the face of some friends. You know, and it was like, uh, 
the last thing, the last place I want to be in the whole world is, you know, to spend time with my mind. <laughs> like, are you crazy? Um, so s- something about um, being here, uh, being present with this, you know, when we sit, what we're faced with is this raw, kind of unedited version of ourselves. And uh, that can be difficult, you know. So, so the quality I'm thinking of is the quality of courage. And I think it takes a lot of courage to do this practice. Um, you know, uh, sometimes I think it's like, we're either very wise or, <laughs> or very desperate you know, to come here because it's not easy. Um, and, and to meet ourselves, to face ourselves in this way, um, it takes courage. Um, one of the most inspiring things to me, you know, I'm a new teacher, so I'm, I'm, I'm assisting on retreats and, and, and teaching on, on retreats. And one of the most inspiring things to me is to meet the students in the interviews, in the one-on-one practice discussions, and seeing um, how difficult this practice can be, and the inner and the outer obstacles that we have to overcome in order to do this practice. Uh, It takes so much courage. Um, So it's, you know, like when we sit, you know, what comes up? You know, there's, there's physical aches and pains, and there's emotional difficulties. There's memories, there's uh, stories, um, fantasies, fears, uh, self-judgment is something that can come up a lot for people, um, desires. The way I think about it is it's, it's like a mirror. We sit down and, you know, our face automatically appears, you know, our inner landscape, moment by moment. Um, one of the ways of thinking about this practice is as a, a path of purification. Um, and, and as you know, when something, when we purify something, the impurities start bubbling up. Um, you know, and that can be painful. One of the one of the things that would often happen for me when I would sit on retreats is uh, a lot of memories and especially regrets. You know, things that I regretted would would come up, and I started uh, thinking, it's like, oh, I should. I should apologize to this person. Oh, and this person too. I should probably apologize to this person too. And I, I actually started to make a list of all the people I needed to talk to. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I think that's how I think about it as a, path, as, a, as a process of purification, as a path of purification. So something about the courage uh, not to flinch, you know, to be with ourselves. Um, it requires personal strength. It requires, uh, you know, a sense of heart, a kind of heartfulness, 
um, to witness ourselves, to accompany ourselves in this way. Um, so having a strong self, you know, this, I, I think sometimes in this practice we don't think about it that way. Um, but, you know, one illustration of this, um, especially in Asia, is this image of the warrior. Um, it's not something that all of us here in California necessarily think of or identify with, um, but you know it's there in the tradition. Uh, the Buddha was from the warrior caste, and um, you know over and over there's this image of the strength of the warrior on this on this journey, um, and, and kind of the strength of of knowing oneself of mastering oneself. Um, when I think of some of the Asian teachers I've had, um, they have a lot of personal power, you know? I mean, they're like, it's like the lion's roar. Um, they're not wallflowers, they're not, you know, the self-effacing, no self, you know? Um, they're, boom, you know, upandita, or uh, some of the Japanese, Harada Shodo, or Japanese Zen master. I mean, they have a really powerful presence. Um, and, and of course, courage takes many forms. You know, so it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to look like this stereotypical warrior. Um, I have other images in my mind of courage. Um, you know, I think of a woman having the courage to go through childbirth and, and giving birth. Um, that's, that, you know, I haven't experienced it. I've, I've, <laughs> I've seen it. You know, um, I also think of the courage it takes to express emotion, to kind of be liberated enough to, to be able to cry, to to, um, you know, express what we're feeling freely. Uh, that takes courage. Um, I think of the, of the courage it takes to break down barriers, you know, in whatever f- form, you know. Um, you know, to be a, a kind of a pioneer in something, even when it's not easy. So something about this, this inner quality of, you know, this fortitude, this inner strength, um, to, to be able to sit still, to sit calmly in the middle of our experience, in the middle of the storms of thought, the storms of emotion. You know, um, we may have fear, we may have doubt, but we don't let that stop us. And so something about in meditation, it's like the courage to, to be with ourselves moment, moment after moment um, without the protection of the usual editing, you know, without the protection of the usual distractions. Uh, we have so many ways to, to, to avoid and distract ourselves uh, from simply feeling what we're feeling, you know, from simply 
you know, being with how things are. Um, there's, there are billion dollar industries that are about helping us to, to avoid this stuff. So, um, and so, so usually the way I think about it is usually we cut away so much. It's like we're here and then we're, 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 we're gone. We're here and then we're gone. We're, um, and, and something about meditation is like um, replacing the selective awareness with the moment to moment, the continuity. Um, and that is where the possibility of insight arises. You know, the insight in insight meditation is not something we do. It's just something that arises through, out of the moment to moment to moment continuity of the mindfulness. So when we develop this courageous quality of the heart, this quality of the self, one of the fruits of this uh, can be the sense of confidence, the sense of trust. You know, the first way I think about it is, is confidence in the Dharma, you know, confidence in this path. Um, you know, we begin to see through our own experience uh, the pain of clinging, uh, the pain of clinging to something, identifying with something uh, that's that's not real, that's an illusion, that's impermanent. Um, and and then something about holding ourselves in awareness, um, you know, holding the suffering that we do feel uh, with tenderness. Um, this is, this is what softens, this is what heals, this is what opens. Um, you know, something about loosening this fixed view of ourselves, this fixed view of, of who we are, who other people are, uh, what life is about. Uh, that gets loosened, That's, that gets softened. And we begin to trust this process more and more. You know, it's a safe place to be. Um, So as we begin to trust in, trust in the Dharma, trust in this process, we cultivate some stability, we cultivate some steadiness, we cultivate ease, sense of ease, a sense of well-being, a sense of balance. And, and this is what leads to a trust in ourselves, a confidence in ourselves. Um, you know, and it, it gives the opportunity for beautiful qualities to unfold. Uh, within us, you know, and, and we see for ourselves the sense, you know, I am a valuable person. Um, the, the choices that I make are meaningful. Um, they're consequential. You know, um, and, and, and what I would say is that um, contrary, you know, if you hear the teaching of not self, you can think, well, it's all empty. What does it matter? There's, there's no self, it, you know. Um, but I think the opposite is true. And it's like, you know, from the point of view of Buddhism, uh, 
um, each of us is extremely important. And uh, each of us uh, uh, has, has a value that can't be compared to, to anyone else. Um, uh, for one reason, uh, because each of us is capable of awakening. Some schools of Buddhism have this uh, expression, all beings have Buddha nature. Um, and it's, it, it, it's not all beings minus one. You know, um, all beings, all beings. Um, you know, so we each have this capacity to awaken and, and each of us is worthy of respect. You know, so, so something about that. And doing this practice, you know, what I would say is a profoundly uh, respectful practice. Uh, it takes a lot of self-respect to do this practice. Um, and as we develop this quality of self-confidence, it helps to overcome the hindrance of doubt. Um, you know, we you know. We take delight in that we have a practice, we have this path, and, and we're on it, we're walking on it, you know, and it doesn't really matter, you know, where we are or where we think we are. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're walking the path. And so what I would say is that this sense of confidence directly supports us, sense of confidence and trust in the Dharma, trust in ourselves, directly supports us uh, to have the trust to, when we sit, uh, to do less and less, you know, to be more and more simple. Um, It's easy to start, it's easy to think like more mindfulness is better, more concentration is better, more, you know, there's, 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 some, there's some technique, there's some, there's some secret to this that's gonna, and you know, what I would say is it's, it's almost the opposite. It's like the, the, the less we do, the more simple we can be, you know, with presence, combined with presence, is where the practice can really unfold. Um, so the analogy that's often given for this is, is a pond that's muddy or is like a glass of water that's cloudy. And the way, the way to make it clear, the way to get clarity is to totally leave it alone and to let something settle. When we start fiddling with it and stirring it up, it just, it just creates um, more cloudiness. But when we can just really, really leave it alone, um, something starts to settle. Uh, some, you know, the, the clarity can really shine through. Um, but when we sit, we, what, one of the first things we notice is how difficult it is to leave ourselves alone. You know, it's like, you know, one of the analogies that's often given is it's like when we look in the mirror it's a little bit hard not to kind of, you know, like turn a little bit, you know, <laughs> side is a little bit better, or, you know, or like, hang on a second for me, you know. Um, 
you know, to really see ourselves as we are, um, I think this goes against our conditioning in some fundamental way. Um, so something about can we trust enough to leave ourselves alone, um, you know, and, and let the process work through us. Like the sense, nothing needs to change. Um, usually, we come to this practice or we come to meditation because uh, we have the sense that how things are, things as they are, is a problem, um, and and so it's a little bit of a paradox that you know uh, the answer or the solution, you know, happens to be things as they are. Um, and so, th- and the way I think about this, one of the images I have is like when we sit, we become like you know, you could think of it like a house with all the lights are on, and all the doors are open, and all the windows are open, and everything can just pass through, you know, or like a long hallway, and the front door's open, and the back door's open. And then it doesn't matter, you know, every, anything and everything just passes through us. We become transparent. Um, the most difficult emotions, fantasies, uh, the inner critic, uh, states of joy, states of bliss, of calm, of ease. It doesn't matter, you know, it just passes through. Um, and that's, you know, another way of thinking about the self. It's like we're just one self-state after another. Um, and, you know, how freely can we let these states pass through um, without singling out one, one mind state and saying, that's me, you know, that's the real me. Um, So, you know, so it's like when, when we, either in our sitting or in our everyday life, when we have some sense of lack, you know, something's missing, something's lacking, um, some voice of the inner critic, you know, some, some kind of negativity, um, self-criticism or doubt, to remember that this comes from our thinking or our unconscious or conscious habits of mind, it's an activity, um, it's a doing, um, it's not the default. Um, and, and when we understand that it's an activity, that, you know, that, that we're actually doing it, um, something can start to shift. And, and that activity, uh, that inner critic, or, you know, or whatever it is, begins to thin out. You know, it begins to quiet. Um, uh, you, know, so, you know, so we start to have this sense of like, oh, I, you know, I've been imprisoning myself. Um, I've been creating my own suffering. Um, and, and, and this is another paradox. When we really see this, 
we become very happy, you know, because because we because we know how to free ourselves from it, you know. Um, you know, so 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 one of the one of the more helpful pieces of instruction that I found is that. Um, you know, whatever it is that, that tends to keep us imprisoned in the small self, uh, whether it's fear or anxiety or desire or shame or doubt, uh, whatever it is, uh, a very helpful way of working with it is to locate it in the body. Uh, and it's, you know, based on this principle that these, these mental phenomena all have some kind of physical component. And, and often it's, it, it's not that helpful to engage it on a level of, of thinking because you just get more into the story. Um, but you know, when we can feel it in the body, um, it's like getting, getting at it through the back door. And it's, um, You know, it could be some old pattern or something that we've internalized. And so, so we locate it with a kind of a loving uh, awareness, a loving tenderness, meet it in the body, wherever it is. You know, I know for me, uh, anxiety is often in the belly. And often I don't even know I'm anxious until I feel it. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I, I feel it in the body first. Um, and just to be with it there. You know, not to, not to uh, try to get rid of it, uh, but just to be with it, um, listening to the body in a certain kind of way. Um, this can be extremely helpful, extremely helpful. It's like, you know, the body is our, our door, doorway into the world of emotions, into the world of the unconscious. Um, into all the unconscious expectations that shape our experience. Um, so, so as this activity of, of selfing, you know, of constructing the self begins to still, begins to quiet, um, what we can discover is a certain kind of stillness, um, a sense of wholeness, a sense of completion, uh, something, something gets integrated, you know, a sense of integrity. Um, you know, there's, this, there's this expression in Zen of when you are you, Zen is Zen. You know, when you are you, uh, when you are you, that's Buddha. Um, and, and what I take this to mean is, um, something about, you know, like, you have absolute value. You have intrinsic value uh, that can't be compared to anyone, that can't be measured against anyone. Uh, you know, so there's something about this sense of our own, our own worth, our value, uh, uniqueness, and a big part of this practice, I think, is learning to learning to cherish that. 
you know, learning to, to see our own beauty and cherish that. And this is, you know, this is the foundation. Uh, this is uh, you know, this is the sense of self that that leads to the insight of not self. And with this uniqueness, you know, and the other side of that is, is the, resp- our, the sense of responsibility, you know. Um, uh, something about taking our place in the world. Uh, no, one, you know, no one can do, no one can live your life for you. No one can do this practice for you. Um, you know, it's something that we each need to, to do for ourselves. Uh, we can support each other, um, but uh, there's the thing I always think of is this uh, this Japanese Zen master who said, speaking to this 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 quality of of of, of our own unique role to play in life. He says something like, "What it, what is shame? Even an important Zen master like me, I have to pee in person." <laughs> you know, there's some things we have to do in person. We have to show up. Um, you, know, so, you know, so with courage, with confidence, with trust, with this strong sense of, of, of who we are, of our, of our uniqueness, our value, that's what we bring to the cushion, you know. Okay, and uh, you know, so you know, so we have such a strong self, such a such an authentic self that uh, uh, then it's okay to 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 be nobody, um, and 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 the insight of of not self. Uh, can come as this astonishing relief. It's like, oh, you know. And I think one of the astonishing things about it is, uh, you know, spending our whole lives thinking about the self, um, worrying about the self, yeah, protecting the self, um, and, and that starts to loosen. You know, that starts to. Uh, we start to be free of that, uh, the suffering, the suffering that's involved with that. And then, and then you know, what, what I would say is this really frees us to be ourselves uh, without fear. You know, we can really express ourselves in this way, or express our uniqueness. Not li- you know, we're not limited by some static picture of who we think we are. Maybe that's uh, that's enough for for me. Uh, we have some time. I I wonder if there's any questions or comments or.
it's your turn. Thank you. Um, I do have a question for whatever reason, kind of intuitively. When we talk about non-self, in a sense, uh, at least under Western terms, we would think of non-power, if you will. You know, an assailant, for example, might come at us, and at best or worst, we might just passively accept it. Sort of like, I'm from the Vietnam generation of the 1960s, we would watch Buddhist monks self-immolate themselves in Vietnam in response to the war between the United States and so on. So this sort of sense of even annihilation, I guess. The question becomes, I have five sisters, and I love all of them, and in fact I have a second sister right over here, Mary Lou, um, and my cousin. The question, I, for some reason tonight I'm thinking about non-self and female power and identity. And the caution I have here is that aren't women, one way or the other, even in a modern emancipated age, aren't women at a slight disadvantage in that regard of power and protectiveness versus just, say, the size of men or something like that? So the question kind of involves, did the Buddha have a female consciousness? And if so, uh, how does that kind of work its way out here? It's an interesting question. Um, just to speak to your first point about, you know, and, and that's part of the, that's part of the reason that um, I thought it might be helpful to, to give this talk because we, it's so, we so often associate self with power. And, and then to say no self, not self, you know, does this mean giving up my power? Does this mean, you know, being powerless, you know, a kind of, even a metaphorical self-immolation, you know. Um, and, and what I would say is no, you know, and that's, you know, that's part of this, this whole sense of actually, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, having this very healthy sense of, of self, of our own personal efficacy, personal strength, courage. Um, these are extremely supportive qualities. Um, you know, where does the feminine uh, come in? Um, you know, it's an interesting question, and, and it's something that's been, you know, I, one of the things I think about is the position of uh, female monastics, at least in this tradition, the Theravada tradition. Um, I think throughout the tradition, they've been kind of subordinate to the male monastics, the monks. You know, it's kind of reflected the culture. Um, and even today, there's this sense of women, of nuns not getting the recognition or the same amount of dana, of donations that the monks get. Um, this was an issue that the Dalai Lama was confronted with because the, the nunneries in Tibet and in India were falling apart and they weren't, um, uh, you know, there's, so it's, it's, a, it's a really open question. And, 
in California, in the West, there's this movement to uh, bring full ordination back to the nuns, which it was lost. You know, the, the chain was broken. And, and so that's kind of being reclaimed, recovered. Um, but, you know, I, I, I mean, one thing I can say is that um, the, the meditate, one of the teacher of teachers, you know, meditation teachers in Burma who trained Gil, trained many of the Western teachers, uh, Upandita, would often say that women are the best yogis. Women make the best meditators. Um, and I'm not sure, I think he would say this because they, they follow instructions. <laughs> you know, they, you know and, and really, you know, listen to the, the instructions and do it. And, you know, and, and that's, um, but, um, Uh, but I don't think, I, I think as the practice unfolds, it's not a, a feminine or, you know, man or woman, those are just conventions as well, you know, that as the, as the practice unfolds, you know, those are seen to be also just, you know, conventions, just uh, identities that we don't cling to. I mean, that we, we pick up, we use, but, you know, it's not fundamental. I think that's my... That's my sense of it. Someone else may. I went to a uh, an Asian cultural center, and you know, for my son who's studying music, and there was one of the clauses of behavior that seemed to me had a Buddhist uh, origin to it, and that was they asked the child, you must have forbearance when you are confronted with an insult. Do you, do you know anything about that? Ah. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't heard that formulation directly, but it reminds me of, of something a little bit similar, which is a, a, a quote by Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. And um, and he asks, um, who is, you know, what does he say? Like, uh, who is stronger? Is it, is it stronger? Who's, which requires more strength? Uh, to beat someone up or to be patient while being beaten? <laughs> and, you know, so I, I think about what you said in that I mean the context I have for that is, is kind of being in meditation and feeling like a, you know <laughs> again you know back thinking wandering mind back to the breath wandering mind. Um, I don't know if that uh, you know uh, so, so what is it forbearance in the face of uh, an in the face of an insult oh. I mean, you, I, I could see how, how that kind of sensibility can come out of practice. You know, as we, as we cultivate patience, cultivate compassion, not that we should be a doormat, you know, um, but, you know, it's like, it's like when, 
You know, it's like that principle of like if you drop if you drop a die into a small glass like this, it immediately turns red. But if you drop the same amount of dye into an ocean, you know, it doesn't really affect it. And when we have this very constricted sense of self, you know, everything insults me. Every, you know, I, I'm so sent. You know, it's like I'm so brittle. I'm so sensitive. Um, I'm offended by everyone and every. You know, it's when. when I mean, that's just me. But when, when I have a sense of self that's much more expansive, it's like, you know, someone could cut me off when driving. It's like, okay. You know. it, it kind of, you know, rolls off me. I mean, that's, that's my association with it. I guess I'm just wondering if any of the women um, would like to respond to the discussion about um, masculinity, femininity, and the, the structure of Buddhist communities. Noble silence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Some things came to mind. I don't really have it formed out, so maybe I'll talk. And then anybody that has comments, too. What came to mind for me is when when they talk about women in management and in leadership positions, there's a certain style that they tend to have. Of course, everybody's unique, but they tend to have more of the people skills and they can create a close-knit team, stereotypically. And then, then the men are more sort of run, running it in that, in that stereotypical, more, um, well, masculine. Sort of, I think... It, I even call it militaristic, sort of sometimes. Not, I know everybody's different. So I think that those those traits can really lend themselves to women sitting differently, or being able to be with um, what they're what they're feeling, what they're experiencing. Maybe. Anybody else want to comment? <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the, um, I think one of the uh, contributions as we in the West, you know, this is so new in this country, but as as we have more women teachers, um, there's more, I mean, I think of one, one, one woman teacher, Joko Beck, who was a Zen teacher, a lot of Vipassana practices that she taught. And, and she was... Um, you know, she, her teacher was a Japanese male teacher who, you know, was a gifted traditional teacher, but also had, you know, some of the other, you know, alcoholism and, and other kinds of um, indiscretions and things like that. And so she broke away 
and developed a kind of practice, a style of teaching practice that, that was so much more emotionally aware. And, and her insight was that through the traditional Zen koan c- curriculum, emotions were totally absent. <laughs> it didn't address emotions at all. And then that's how you could get this, you know, the most impeccably trained masters having absolutely zero emotional um, intelligence or emotional insight. Um, so, and, and now I think, you know, so that's kind of permeated so much that I don't think about it as feminine or, or masculine for myself. It's just like, you know, bypassing emotions is just not a good idea. And it's just not what the path is. Um, also, I, I didn't really remember this until just now, but I've actually done a lot of study of the brain and men's and women's brains. And I'm sure some of you may have seen stuff on public television or um, you know where they've talked about the differences in the brain and there's and we all know that meditation does affect your brain and physiologically men's brains are uh, they, they process <laughs> 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 no, I was looking for it. They process differently. You know, each has a brain, but they pro- and they they've done scientific studies to prove yeah. that they process yeah. differently. So that yeah. might have something to do yeah. with it. Too. Thank you. Any last comments? Last thoughts? Yeah, I do have one thought on this subject. Mike. You know, this has been an excellent, hopefully an excellent opportunity to kind of... Just push the... Push the... (laughs) Hello? Um, Yes, thank you. Maybe women's inherent strength, because we're talking about this business of individual identity, and so the problem is over-identifying with our individual identity. We're going to see a lot of that on Super Bowl Sunday and stuff. So this non-self, which was the topic tonight. So I wonder, and this is just a question, if whether women's um, greatest competence or greatest strength of self is in the area of, of, ad- of adhesion, like the glue, whereas men might be parts in a puzzle. Women provide literally the super glue, the Elmer's glue, to bring all these disparate composites together. You know, Einstein uh, talked about his first wife being instrumental in his development of the theory of relativity. And, uh, you know, um, there was some discussion as to whether she shouldn't have shared the Nobel. So so I I tend to think of in terms of a species kind of thing, how do species survive? And it's sort of like the female polar bear with the cubs and the old male she has to send away or he'll eat the cubs or something like that. So this kind of sense yeah. of adhesion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't quite know how, honestly, we're still a little early on this, and so this goes defaults back to you, is how do we go from non-self as, as a, maybe a very admirable characteristic, ideally, within the Buddhist context, how do we go from non-self to, to uh, things that are fundamentally necessary 
for composure, uh, for tranquility, for survivability, and maybe even for exceptionability. You know, the ability to, as you said, yeah. it, it's the drop of dye in a glass versus the drop of dye in the water in the ocean. So thank you. Yeah. It's been very yeah. helpful. Thank you very much. I mean, the, just the only thing I would say to that is that I think those qualities can are 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 not dependent on um, you know uh, the 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 pers- that kind of small self that perspective of self and actually they're released more when we when we can relate to self as something more fluid um, not that there's no self but you know it's almost like it's all self um, and uh, so. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks. Right.